The word of God speaks to us like this. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything to the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out, to, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not take doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Shelby. Guys, good morning. Happy New Year. It's good to see everybody. Glad you guys are here. Um, I missed you guys like crazy last Sunday. I was in the queue that uh, the Rona finally got me, and I missed y'all. I was praying for you, and I'm really, really excited to be back today to dive into the Gospel of Mark. If we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, typically what we do as a church on Sundays is we pick books of the Bible, and we go through the entire book of the Bible. And we do that because the authority doesn't rest in my opinions or hot takes. The authority is in the Word of God. And so we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark. We took a break to get into our Advent season, and then we took a break for Christmas tide. And today we're back in the Gospel of Mark. And if you're just jumping in, if you're new to our church, if you're a guest, don't feel like you're not going to be able to get caught up. This book is amazing, and you're actually stepping in at the perfect moment. Chapter 11 is the transition of this book, and what's about to happen is so profound that if you're a follower of Jesus, there's an invitation for you, and if you're not a follower of Jesus, there's a really clear invitation for you in this as well. So I'm going to pray for you guys, ask you to pray for me, and then you can turn to Mark 11 and we'll get after it. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you're doing. God, I want to pray today that you would help us to have the expectation that's appropriate in light of your promises, that you said that your word is living and active, that it shapes and it pierces. And I pray today, Lord, that as we open your word, that you would form us, that you would shape us. I pray that parts of our hearts that are cold, parts of our hearts that have become petrified would be softened and warmed. And I pray, Lord, that you would do a deep work today. Holy Spirit, we love you. We need you. You're our teacher. Come and be with us. Thank you for being here. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Hey, before we dive into chapter 11, let me get you caught up on this book. This will help you make sense of just how bizarre our text is today. Here's what's happening in the Gospel of Mark. 
in the very beginning of this gospel, we're introduced to a prophet named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's entire preaching ministry can be summed up with one sentence. John is preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus shows up, who happens to be John's cousin, and John points at Jesus and he tells the crowd around him that Jesus is the anointed one or the one that the Old Testament prophesied would come with the power of the Holy Spirit who would be God's Messiah. And then Jesus gets baptized by John in the River Jordan and when he comes out of the water, the Father declares over Jesus, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Then Jesus immediately goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then he comes back from that temptation and Jesus starts his preaching ministry with one sermon. The kingdom of God is at hand. So here's what we know from the very beginning of this book, chapter 1, that in the arrival of Jesus, God himself through his son Jesus is bringing his kingdom. That God's kingdom has arrived in the advent of Jesus that God's kingdom has showed up to push back the kingdoms of this world and to bring the very presence of God through God's son and through God's king, Jesus Christ. And then things start to happen that go with the kingdom of God. Jesus starts to perform amazing miracles. Things that are bent and twisted due to the fall of creation, Jesus makes right. He casts out demons and people that were tormented are found in their right minds. He heals bodies that are bent and suffering. He feeds the multitudes with just a little bit of bread and some fish. Everywhere Jesus goes, he preaches the kingdom and he demonstrates the kingdom. And in the midst of those demonstrations, we see the very love and presence of God making things that were wrong right. And in the midst of that, as early as chapter 2, we start to see resistance to Jesus and his kingdom. And what's crazy about the resistance to Jesus and his kingdom is that it doesn't come from people that were clearly sinners in that moment in history. That was a class of people in Jewish culture that were unclean. It included tax collectors who were stealing from their neighbors to fund the Roman occupation. It included prostitutes. It included people that were considered outcast and dirty and defiled and outside of the life of Israel. You would think that if the kingdom of God shows up, it would be the sinful people that would resist the kingdom. But on the contrary, the people that resist the kingdom of God, the people that are offended, the people that want to stop Jesus, are the very people that were supposed to be leading Israel into a deeper devotion and a deeper obedience to God. It was the chief priests. It was the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the shepherds that were supposed to help Israel love God and obey God, actually resist God when he shows up in his son, Jesus. And we see in chapter 2 that they accuse Jesus of blasphemy when he forgives sins. Time goes on, and then they become indignant because Jesus refuses to keep all the extra rules and traditions that they've added to God's law. They had added all kinds of crazy things that became like burdens in people's backpacks that prevented them from obeying God's law. And Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to keep your traditions and violate what God's actually said. And they're, they're furious about it. And then they get really angry at Jesus because he heals on the Sabbath. Time goes on, and at every turn they're offended, and they accuse him, 
and they plot against him. And no less than three times by the time we get to chapter 11, Jesus tells his disciples that the very leaders of Israel, the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees, the ones that are supposed to help Israel receive God and love God, Jesus tells his friends that those guys are going to arrest him and try him and hand him over to be murdered. And then we get to chapter 11. And chapter 11 is the turning point in the book. Chapter 11 is the moment where Jesus goes from his healing and preaching ministry throughout the region to setting his face like flint to go to Jerusalem, to enter the city. And last time we were in the Gospel of Mark, we talked about Jesus' entrance. And today we get to talk about the very first thing that he does when he gets to this city, which has been one of the most controversial acts of Jesus since these Gospels were recorded. Today we get a different kind of miracle. Up to now, the miracles of Jesus were miracles of recreation, miracles of healing, miracles of making things whole, taking things that are broken and making them alive again. But now Jesus does something really strange. Instead of taking something that's broken and making it whole, he curses a living fig tree and it dies. Now this act has been written about for hundreds of years from an atheist perspective. There's been people that have said that this is proof that Jesus is arbitrary and self-serving, that he flies off the hand when he curses a fig tree because he's hungry. He's obviously a person that you can't trust. He flies off the hinges. He's not stable. And yet I want to contend today as we look at this text that the cursing of the fig tree is a prophetic it's a prophetic parable in which Jesus is saying something that the people then and you and me today desperately need to hear. It's not arbitrary, it's not accidental, it's not Jesus being unstable. In fact, the truth is that this miracle and the events accompanying this miracle are a sign to us that Jesus Christ is both savior and judge. He's both savior and judge. So I want you to stick with me because we're going to have to do some work in the Old Testament today. And I know some of you guys have a fever that can't be cured by anything except the minor prophets, and this one's going to be for you. So take your Bible. I want to show you four things about our text. The first thing, I want you to see that the withering of the fig tree or the cursing of the fig tree is a prophetic parable. I want you to see the flow of how Mark tells this story. We have Jesus cursing the fig tree. He shows up. The fig tree is covered in leaves. It looks like it should be fruitful. Jesus is hungry. He goes to the fig tree, doesn't find any fruit, and curses it. Then he goes directly into the temple, and he cleanses it. And then he moves out of the temple, back to the fig tree. The disciples ask him about it, and Jesus teaches on prayer. Okay, these three moments in this story are all connected. It's all a part of one thing that Jesus is saying. And the disciples that heard Jesus as Jewish people who had their imagination shaped by the Old Testament would have known that these events are deeply connected to what God had said prophetically for hundreds of years about the religious life of Israel. Let me give you just a few examples. In the book of Hosea, Hosea writes this in chapter 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruits of a fig tree in its first season. I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal Peor, and they consecrated themselves to the things of shame, and they became detestable like the things that they loved. 
Okay, here's what's happening. Like, again and again in the Old Testament, God uses the metaphor of a vineyard and the metaphor of a fig tree to talk about his expectation for Israel. Just as a fig tree is to give up figs as it's cared for and nurtured and tended, and just as a vineyard is to give up grapes for the making of wine as it's cared for and tended, what God is saying is that the grace that he showed his people in the Old Covenant the grace that he showed when he delivered them from Egypt, the grace he showed when he gave them his law, the grace that he showed when he raised up his prophets and his teachers to instruct them that the expectation of God is that that grace would produce fruit through the life of Israel, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of justice, the fruit of worship, the fruit of neighbor love. And instead of finding the fruit, What Hosea is telling us is that God's inspecting his vineyard, he's inspecting his fig tree, and he doesn't find fruit. Instead, he finds idolatry, that they don't worship God, they worship false gods. Let me show you another. This is Jeremiah chapter 8, verse verse 13. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. And then lastly, Micah chapter 7. It's a lament prophecy. And Micah says this, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered. And when the grapes have been gleaned and there is no cluster to eat. No first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly have perished from the earth. And there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood. And each hunts the other with a net. The prophetic condemnations that we see again and again in the Old Testament liken the religious life of Israel to a fig tree that's been chosen and watered and pruned and cared for. But instead of producing the fruit of righteousness, on closer inspection, what we see is that the fruit is either non-existent or bad. There's idolatry, there's injustice, there's bloodshed. And then Jesus goes to the very epicenter of the religious life of Israel, the place that was to be the concentration of fruit, the place that was to be marked by prayer and worship and love and mercy and God's mission for the nations. Jesus goes there and here's what happens right after he curses the fig tree. Look at verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Hey, Jesus comes to this fig tree, and it's got leaves. It's beautiful. It looks alive, but he doesn't find fruit on it. And then he comes to the temple, and he finds the trappings of religion the leaves of prayer, the leaves of sacrifice, the leaves of a beautiful sanctified building. But instead of finding the fruit of devotion to God and love for neighbor, what he finds is that under the leadership of the chief priests, the scribes and the Pharisees, they've actually 
use the worship of God to disguise it, the true intent of their heart, which is greed and the worship of money and power. And Jesus points out a couple of things specifically that point to the opposite of the kind of fruit God wanted to have. He says that, is it not written, my house should be called the house of prayer for all the nations. Um, Contrary to what we might think, God choosing Israel in the old covenant was not an act of not loving the other nations. Instead, what we see at every turn is that God promises that through his relationship with Israel, there would come blessing to all the nations. Even when the temple of Solomon was dedicated, what Solomon prophesies is that people in other lands would hear about God and his faithfulness and the beauty of his law and the goodness of his presence, and they would come from other nations and they would worship the God of Israel. And what had happened, and we know this from both history and this text, what had happened is the leaders of Israel had taken the part of the temple that was called the court of the Gentiles. It was a place where God-fearing people that weren't Jewish could come and worship God in the temple, could come and pray to God, could come and get close to the very presence of God in the temple. They had taken the court of the Gentiles and they had turned it into a market so they could pad their pockets by selling pigeons and other animals to be used in the sacrifices of the temple at outrageous prices. They were oppressing the poor and simultaneously, listen, they were in essence making it impossible for the Gentiles to experience a place of reverence and peace to encounter God instead of a place of reverence and peace. It was a marketplace. They were communicating to the Gentiles in essence, we don't want you here. And the heart of God is not that. The heart of God is for every nation. Like, listen, The reality of Christianity is that it's not a European thing. It's not an American thing. It's a beautiful global movement for every tribe, every tongue, every nation. The heart of God is for all people. And Jesus shows up to his temple, and what he finds is that instead of worship for God, there's the worship of money. And instead of love for the nations, there's the exclusion of the Gentiles as they've turned the part of the temple that was for them into a marketplace, into a scam, into a Ponzi scheme. Jesus is outraged. The fig tree being cursed and the cleansing of the temple are not two separate events. It's all connected. It's Jesus saying, the grace of God shown that formed the religious life of Israel was to be grace that would produce fruit. And instead of fruit, like the fig tree, it's barren. Now this leads us to the second thing. The cleansing of the temple is an act of both judgment and mercy. It's an act of both judgment and mercy. And we have a hard time reconciling the two, but Jesus doesn't. Let me read to you from Malachi this prophecy that Jesus fulfills in this moment. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So stop there for a second. That's good news. God's drawing near. This anointed one, this Messiah, this person who brings the very presence of God, who brings reconciliation, who brings the life of God, he's drawing near. That's good news. That's to restore everything that was lost at the fall. But 
it's not just good news. Look at verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Like, here's what's happening. It's this dichotomy that's paradoxical. It feels like two things that can't go together, but they go together every time God shows up on this side of glory. When he draws near, when he brings his kingdom, when his presence shows up, it's profoundly good news to anyone who's willing to receive it to anyone who's willing to bow their knee, to anyone who's willing to repent, to the broken, to the hopeless, to the destitute, to the sinful, to the poor, to the people that know that they don't stack up, it's good news. But to those who want to be self-righteous, to those who demand to build their own kingdom, to those who refuse to surrender, it's bad news. Because his presence is like fire. It cleanses, it purifies. And in this moment, what we see is this this crazy divide between the leaders of Israel and many of the people of Israel. The leaders of Israel, when God shows up to his temple in his son Jesus, the leaders of Israel start to immediately up the ante on their plot to kill him. While the people, many of whom have already heard Jesus teach, they're ready to see what he's going to do next. They want more of him. And I think that this is true 2,000 years later, just as it was back then. The gospel of Jesus is the best news of all time. It's the news of grace. That you can't get to God, so he came to you. And that God is not evaluating our lives as the perfect, righteous, and holy judge on this weird sliding scale of comparison that we think he is. So like as long as you're better than a third of human history, you're going to be okay. Or as long as you're not Hitler, you're going to be okay. Or as long as you're better than your dad or your mom, you're going to be okay. That's not the way God judges because he's not like us. The Bible says he's perfect, he's holy, he's without sin. He can't be in the presence of sin. And so the standard is actually perfection. And the message of grace is this scandal that though we could do nothing to get to God or clean ourselves up because we're sinful people by nature and choice, we're at the same time so loved by God that he sends his son to die in our place, to bear our sin, to grant us his righteousness as a gift that we don't get to claim credit for at all. That's grace. And it's profoundly good news if you'll admit that you need it. But to the degree that you want to stand on your own track record or stand apart from his kingdom, it's also a confrontation with the living God. And that leads us to the third thing. What does this mean for us? Like, what do we do with this? This is so weird. It's easy to read this kind of stuff that's so out of our culture, cursing of a fig tree, the cleansing of a temple, and just read it like, this is just ancient history. What the heck does this mean? It means something really important to us. This text means that fruit matters. That grace is not opposed to fruit. That grace, if truly received, always produces fruit. 
let me show you just a couple of things that Jesus says. Matthew chapter, chapter 3. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John's message to the religious leaders of Israel is, hey, yes, you can receive the kingdom of God in repentance, but there needs to be fruit attached to it. Jesus in Matthew 7 says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. And then, lastly, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus tells the parable of the vineyard. And in the parable of the vineyard, there's an owner of the vineyard that leases it out to tenants and expects to receive fruit from it. He sends his servants and they beat them and cast them out. He sends more servants, they beat them and cast them out. And finally, in verse 37, Jesus says, he finally sends them his son, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, here's the heir. Come, let us kill him and have the inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in season. Okay, this is super heavy, I get it. But here's what we need to see. The grace of God always is manifested in the fruit that it produces. And that doesn't mean that the fruit is perfect. It doesn't mean that the fruit is instantaneous. You don't receive the grace of God and then all of a sudden all of your habits and 30 years or 40 years or 60 years of sinful behaviors, your sins and the sins of others vanish overnight. We're still broken, we're still messed up, we're still sinful, and that sin still oozes out of our lives. But here's what we see in the teaching of Scripture again and again and again. If grace is received, it never stays alone. It leads to fruit, to growth and love for God, to growth and love for God's word, to a desire to war against sin, to Things like peace and patience and love and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. That fruit has to be there. In fact, the connection between grace and fruit is so connected and it's so powerful that many texts of Scripture talk about on the great day, the day of judgment, that God will be able to evaluate the fruit to determine if the person has received the grace. And I'm not telling you this to try to scare you or to try to get you to be moralistic. I'm telling you this because what Jesus does next is profoundly good news. What Jesus does next is really strange. Number four, Jesus is gonna show us that bearing fruit is impossible without help. Look what happens at the end of our story. Mark chapter 11, verse 20. As they passed in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered to its roots. And Peter remembered and he said to him, Rabbi, look, 
the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he said will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Okay, this is really weird. Think about the flow of this. If you're used to this text, it may not be strange, but it's really weird. Jesus curses a fig tree And then he goes to the temple and he overturns tables and he preaches against the lack of fruit in the temple. And then the next day, Peter points out the fig tree that Jesus cursed, that it's dead. And Jesus says, let's talk about prayer. Is that not weird? It's like, this is not the right time to do a Bible study on prayer. This is the time to explain why you cursed a fig tree. Okay, listen. People have done the weirdest thing with this text. This, is, this has become the foundation for all the weird name it and claim it theologies that are out there. If you believe that you've received it, that which you've asked in my name, you have it. And we've taken that to mean all kinds of weird stuff. Like we got dudes calling down private jets and dope cars and fine spouses. They're just naming and claiming. But track with me, it's in the context of the cursing of the fig tree because it didn't have fruit and the cleansing of the temple because it didn't have fruit and then Jesus says let's talk about prayer why is he doing that because we can't produce fruit apart from the presence of God in our lives like on the count of three everybody produce fruit in your life go like oh man I'm struggling to love my wife oh I need more fruit it doesn't Work like that. You can modify behavior, but the problem is that just modifying behavior may mean that we look like the temple that had the leaves, but it didn't have the fruit. We can have the trappings of religion. We can have the trappings of the fear and adoration of the Lord and not have hearts of worship and hearts of love. And that's the fruit he looks for. So what do we do with that? Well, Jesus says we need to trust our Father. Jesus says we need to ask for what we need in his name. Jesus says we need to cultivate a life of forgiving people because the Father has forgiven us and because we want the Father to keep forgiving us. Jesus' teaching on prayer in this text is connected to Jesus revealing to all of his disciples for all time just how important fruit is. Being religious is not sufficient. The temple was plenty religious. Hey, let me take it a step further. Believing the right things is not sufficient. You can believe the right things and not have fruit. I mean, James tells us that Satan believes He knows that Jesus was raised from the dead. He was there. But there's no fruit. (laughs) He doesn't love God. He doesn't love people. Jesus is teaching us on prayer in the context of the importance of fruit to both lift us and challenge us 
to do exactly what John records in, in the Gospel of John, that he's the vine and we're the branches and we can do nothing apart from him. We're to abide in him. The peace we need, the patience we need, the kindness we need, the devotion to God we need, the hatred against sin that we need, the depth of repentance that we need, these are not things that we can all manufacture based on willpower alone or trying harder. These are things that happen as we encounter the glory of God in Jesus, as we commune with God in prayer, as we learn to be with him and learn to listen to him and learn to inhabit our daily spaces with awareness that he's with us and he's in us and we can talk to him. Jesus is not saying we can just ask for whatever arbitrary thing we want in his name and be sure that we're going to get it. Like, that just doesn't work. Jesus is saying if we ask for what's in accordance with his will in his name, we'll get it. And it's in the context of the importance of fruit. That we can ask for what we need to follow him and to love him and to love people. To not be so impatient with our kids and to not be so fearful about our futures to not be so quick to judge and impugn the, mo- the motives of others, to not be so quick to outbursts of anger, to be slow to anger, to be slow to speak. This is the things that we need, man. And, and can we just name, like, it's not even a left or a right thing, I don't think anymore. I think it's just, I think it's just that the volume on anger and hostility and virtue signaling is just, ubiquitous. It's not even a political, it's not even, it shows up in politics, but it's not even about politics. It's just the very fabric of the Western world that we're inhabiting in a digital age. You know what the world needs? It needs to encounter people with the fruit of Jesus in their life. People that don't wring their hands and freak out with anxiety. People that don't send digital bombs towards people all the time. People that know when to shut up. People that know when to unplug. People that are cultivating kindness. Like what a great missionary strategy for the 21st century. Kindness. Which is way different than niceness. You can be nice and not be kind. Right? You can be nice. You can say nice things to people and then walk away and like not care if they get hit by a bus talk trash about it. Kindness is different. That's actually working for the good of others. Jesus is saying fruit really matters. Fruit will be evaluated, but here's the good news. Fruit is produced in conjunction with the communion we have through grace. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you so much for the fruit of Jesus' life that the only hope we have for bearing any fruit is that the fruit of his life is forgiveness and freedom and reconciliation and hope and joy. We pray today, Lord, that you would help us to not walk out of here um, anxious about the fruit of our lives, but to walk out of here sober about the fruit of our lives. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for where there's bad fruit in our lives. And we pray that you would help us to ask for what we need today. Lord, we need courage. We need faith. We need hope. And we thank you that those things are found with you and in you and through you. 
And we thank you that because of your grace, we have you. So meet us today, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.